Caught Offside with Andrew Gunling and J.J. Devaney. Oh, yes. Caught Offside. Suburbs. New York City in an apartment in Brooklyn, New York. Andrew Gunling. JJ Devaney, what's up, brother? Merry Christmas! Merry Christmas to you too, Andrew. I, uh, this is this is one of my favorite times of the year. Mm. The kind of quiet days between Christmas Day and New Year's Eve. It's uh, it's a special time, a time of nothing. And as I think it's in Italian culture, and our Italian listeners can correct me if I'm wrong, but there is a an Italian phrase about the the pleasure and joy of doing nothing. And I think in this world, that is a nice thing to have. Yeah, sometimes absolute nothing is is underrated. It's it's we we do lead busy busy lives. And so sometimes to just have nothing on your schedule it's not it's not the worst thing ever. No, it, it it's good. It it gives us a chance to oh god, I'm going to say it, reset. Uh but really it just gives us this chance to 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 be let our bodies be still and let our minds be still. Yeah. Now I will say that while I while that may be the case for you, nothing is not appearing on my schedule currently. My house has been madness. Um, spending a lot of time with the kids, which is great, which is awesome. But uh, my two year old Luke, he's he's in that uh, in that phase now of um, like the no, I want to do it phase, uh, where yeah. like there's just we could have there could be an active bomb on site with a professional bomb diffuser who's been called in to dismantle it. And as he'd be taking his tools out, Luke, our two-year-old, would be shouting at him the entire time, no, I want to do it. No, I want to do it. And we'd why all have, be incinerated. Why have you just described the the this storyline to the Hurt Locker? That's, <laughs> that is, just... that's the exact storyline. Uh, it's just a, it's something that I've noticed in him that he's hit that phase. I'm sure you know a lot of parents see that. And, and as I've been spending just like, intense amounts of time with them during the winter break which is great it's just one of those things it's like okay you want to pour your own cereal really like okay well now half of it's on the floor it's just kind of one of those phases right now uh generally speaking this may be a time of nothingness for some not for soccer no not at all uh we have many many things to talk about primarily from the Premier league so we're going to go through uh, all of them but don't um, don't 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 just sell it like that. This podcast will also be reflective, which is a theme of this time of year as we turn the page on 2021 and open the book, the new book, where we can write our own chapters on 2022. And we will be reflecting on what I thought was a very interesting year in football in the yeah. past 12 months. Yeah. In the second half of the podcast tonight, we'll look back on our, our favorite story from 2021, our least favorite story, uh, some memorable podcasts moments from the past year and the things or thing that we're most looking forward to next year. In, and the uh, listeners will have their say as well, Andrew. I oh, have, nice. uh, I have, uh, what do you mean? Oh, nice. You see, this is the problem. You haven't read the rundown. Have you? I've, I furnished you with all the listener comments. Yeah, I'm aware JJ, this is an entertainment vehicle. And sometimes even though I know a thing, I try to act surprised for the sake of enthusiasm. Don't lie to me. I swear to you. I've got everything written here in front of me. Okay. I'm looking right. at it. Sorry. Okay. I just thought it was one Your of those inability moments. to understand the way this medium works after almost eight years doing it is it's frankly sad, uh, appalling 
and people, and really frustrating. People love me as a broadcaster. They love my voice. They love my my opinions on things. So don't you dare try. And by the way, it doesn't yeah. all have to be you know Bob Costas. It can be a little bit you know a little bit loose, a little bit you know curvy. No, no, no. This is I've always said that I I envision this podcast to be sixty minutes for your ears. <laughs> well, we are failing. Uh, JJ, I want to start. I, I don't know. This was not really on your rundown, but I'm going to go off script because, as you just said, you like things loose and curvy. Uh, at around, I guess, probably around 5 o'clock p.m. Eastern time, um, a middle-aged boy in Brooklyn, New York, sent out a tweet, and it read, and that's the league over, folks. And that middle-aged boy was you, referring to Liverpool as they fell to Leicester City 1-0. And so I ask you now, with a little bit of time to reflect, mm. Do you actually believe that, that the league is done and dusted? Yeah. I mean, the only people who are really, and I'm not, there's, there's uh, Paul Tompkins. There's lots of Liverpool fans who've been watching the club a lot longer than I have, who I, I go to for, for knowledge, uh, who are in agreement with me. That's how it feels right now. And it's also not just a feeling. There's, there's pretty, pretty good data to suggest that Manchester City will go on now and win the title six points to a team. Uh, of that squad's depth and capability is not nothing. And Liverpool, as excellent as they are, as good a side as they are, even tonight, Andrew, um, this is one of the stats that was tweeted out. Liverpool register the most touches in the opposition box without scoring in the Premier League this season, 67. So mm. as bad as they were tonight, they still they weren't awful. Right. Uh, it, you know, Leicester were, were very good, very compact. We'll get into that in a minute. But... Um, Liverpool are still fallible in a way that City are not. And there's, uh, you know, I, I do wish people would stop treating Manchester City like any ordinary club because they are not. Uh, not in the way that squ squad has been constructed. This is a club that can leave the most expensive player in English, you know, the most ex expensive English player in history on the bench. And alongside him, they can leave the the great new hope of English football, uh, Pep's, you know, one of Pep's protégés, Phil Foden, on the bench as well, and cruise to victory. This is not a squad that uh, will suffer in the same way other squads will. And so to think that City can go on now on this run of nine games and extend that to something ridiculous like 17, 18, and, and win a title by, have a title really in the palm of their hand by, by, by late February, early March. Why is that? Why? That's just not crazy to me. That's so, and, and it's a pattern. It's a pattern we're beginning to see emerge now. Uh, like I, I would say in the Alex Ferguson years in the nineties. And again, I haven't looked at the stats, but the feeling as a supporter as a young middle-aged boy at that time, <laughs> the feeling then was, oh, um, business time. Oh, yeah, business time, middle of February, March, around St. Patrick's Day. After that, that's business time. That's where you go, and that's where titles are won. Whereas I think in the city, Liverpool, back and forth era, which, I mean, it's only been back and forth really once where Liverpool have won it, but in this, in this era of them being the two best teams, uh, you would say, that that period is now extended to Christmas. Kind of. Kind of. Or at least, I'm trying to think of other tight risks. I would say like January, that's when it really gets extended. So it's not crazy to look at a, a brilliant, brilliant squad 
uh, assembled in the way it has been by, by Pep Guardiola for Manchester t- City to say this feels and is tangibly over. So I will, I'm not, I'm not going to fight you on it. I will, I would, I would kind of agree. Uh, and I'm, I'm couching it for one reason that I'll mention in a sec, but um, the reason, no, you're not crazy because, and I would be the wrong person to sit here specifically me and tell you that you were crazy because what was it that I pounded into the heads of all of our listeners on our last podcast that in this wild COVID ridden season, the number one factor in determining who's going to succeed and who's going to fail is depth. And no one has Manchester City's depth. Some, I mean, Chelsea have good depth. Liverpool have good depth. Manchester City have obscene depth. You just went through the reasons that, you know, Grealish, Foden, uh, players like that can be benched and it, they don't blink. It doesn't matter. It does not matter. Kevin De Bruyne is only just now rounding into Kevin De Bruyne form. It has not mattered. No one guy means that much on this team because every guy is ridiculous on this, on this team. One through 11, through everyone on the bench. Um, so in a season where depth is going to be king, it stands to reason that if Manchester City have a six-point lead at Christmas, well, they have a head start because depth is only going to matter more as we go deeper into the season. Now, the only reason that I, I, I can't fully say it's over, that I'm, I'm still going to be invested in this race, simply because if you just look at the fixture list, there are Manchester City are not, they're not invincible. Like I do believe that this team, while amazing, is capable of, of losing a game here and there. Uh, and there are losable games still on their on their schedule. So, you know, including a game, I think, April 9th against Liverpool. So, you know, that I, I can't say I that know, it's over until some of these games happen. Now, the thing is, Liverpool have losable games on their schedule, too. Well, and, like, yeah, Liverpool are going to play Chelsea early January. And right then and there, if Chelsea win and Man City win that same day, but, but I, it could I, be over. I, I won't worry about Liverpool in those kind of games, I think. I think Liverpool, like I said, are more fallible. Like City will will strangle the life out of, of most other teams in this league, Andrew, including the you know a lot of the teams that we expect to go on and are expected to 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 be in the top top four, top six. They they don't worry about that, and I think Liverpool are better than most teams in this. But they have a there's always if you just look at it in terms of games of football when you watch Manchester City most of the time there are aberrations of course Leicester were able to get at them last season Leicester have a way of getting at them in fairness to Leicester uh, Crystal Palace have been able to get at them but generally speaking when you watch City's games it's a there's a an inevitability about it whereas even with we'll say Liverpool's uh, performance at home to Southampton Southampton still created chances so, you know, if you look at the stats and, and um, the defensive stats, I was reading a Sam Lee article weeks ago about how City just don't give shots up. And Ederson really doesn't have that much to do. Ederson had way more to do with the weekend than he's had to, had to do in a, in a long, long time. Liverpool aren't built like that. And so there's a, like I said, there's a, there's a opening and there is a gap in the armour to get at Liverpool in the way that there isn't with City, partly due to the way City play, also partly due to their squad depth. And uh, and I just can't go around denying it. It's not me. By the way, this is not giving up. This is not saying not watching Liverpool for the rest of the season. Jurgen Klopp won't act that way. The players won't act that way. Nobody is doing that. I'm just saying it feels like 
it is very much in City's hands right now, and it is December twenty eighth, and that doesn't feel great. No, of course not. And if uh, and if you're Liverpool, today was particularly frustrating because you know partially because what I talked about last week with Chelsea when Chelsea were going through uh, a little bit of their rough patch, um, trying to determine the difference between poor finishing and poor form because I don't necessarily believe that the two are one and the same. And I think he got a little bit of that from Liverpool today. I saw Mo Salah on his own had an XG of 1.67. Leicester City as a team had 0.68, I believe. I mean, so like chances were generated today. Salah missed a penalty and an absurd follow-up to that penalty off the crossbar. Sadio Mane missed a brilliant chance early in the second half, one that he typically finishes. Um, so like the chances were there for Liverpool. For sure. they, just, they just didn't finish them. For sure, Andrew. And there will be a lot of stats guys out there right now who um I was I was gonna say I don't count as football people, but that's not true. No, they that's are not there. That's not fair at all. They are, but they're just I suppose they are view more... the game maybe a little differently, but yeah, yeah, they're they're a bit their analysis is a bit less hot. It's much more cold and and and, num- and that's by by virtue of the fact it's numbers driven and they will tell you Liverpool actually didn't play that bad but it's soccer and if you don't take your chances you leave yourself open to this and and I while I do subscribe to that I also agree with what Jurgen Klopp said which is give Leicester their due Leicester were the better team in the way they set out to play do you know what I mean like it's I guess Leicester executed what they were trying to do better than Liverpool did in terms of, of, of putting the ball in the net. Like I'm not, I'm not, I'm, I'm not trying to, you know, to say that there was some great method to the way Leicester played. Leicester had, you know, for most of the game, they had two banks of four. They defended as compact and as deep as I've seen the team do in a long time. And they looked to go on the break and one of the breaks worked out. Okay. You have to give credit for that. Yeah. I And I do think there's other elements to the game. We talk about the intangibles. I mean, Amarty's blocks, Indeedy's blocks, you know, that kind of last-ditch defending, getting your body in the way, winning your headers, that, that kind of stuff in and around the box. That's no joke. That, that requires steel. And the other side to it is as well, Leicester are coming in. Think about the you know the week they've had or the 10 days they've had. Yeah. You know, they were in the Carling Cup semi-final and they've... They put out as close to a full team as they possibly could because that's Carling Cup, Carabao Cup. That's a team they want. That's a competition they identified that they can win and they wanted to win it. They also, it was the quarterfinal, right? Quarterfinal, excuse me. And they went to Anfield and they were 3-1 up. Liverpool pinned them back in devastatingly late fashion and then they lose on penalties. And then they have to go to Manchester City and whatever you want to say about that game, they got smashed. They got walloped 6-3. Fascinating and game, though. A fascinating game, definitely. But they got they got hammered, and then what's up next? Within fifty something hours, fifty two hours, they've got to play Liverpool. So, and it's and, essentially a three game stretch within what five days uh, against the two most lethal clubs you can play against in this league. Yeah, it's 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 really tough what they had to do uh, considering the injuries they had as well. Now I hear West Ham United fans crying out. I hear Leeds United fans crying out. Everyone's got injuries, you know, whatever. You know, they, they had to take in Didi and play him essentially in a central defensive role tonight. So I, I maybe I'm being overly magnanimous, but I think you got to give them credit for what they did as well. I thought um, 
Jewsbury Hall was excellent. By the way, have you ever heard of a more kind of aristocratic name? We've got to start calling him Lord Jewsbury Hall. Yeah, there's a um, there's a Family Guy episode where Stewie has fallen in love with kind of like a, um, you know, one of those like stuffy British 1920s shows. And he goes through the, the cast list. Right. And it's just like one name after another. Oh, that's, you know, Patty Chestworth Harrington. And like, it's just like J- Jimmy Sinjin Murphy. And uh, <laughs> right. or it'd never be Murphy. Jimmy Sinjin Chatterton is worth. Yeah. Jewsbury Hall. And, and, and the fullback Thomas was Luke, Luke Thomas uh, has impressed me every time I've seen him over the last few games. So credit to Leicester. Um, and I thought, I thought Jurgen Klopp, who, who, you know, has, has been doing moaning lately, which he does do. Uh, I thought he was magnanimous in the correct way. And um, Leicester took their goal well. And uh, there we have it. Yeah, there we have it indeed. I thought it was admirable. Uh, speaking of Klopp, the way he, you know, had that kind of same level of uh, of outrage over the the Morton incident on Ricardo Pereira and the, his broken leg. Oh wait, what, what? Oh wait, he didn't say anything about it. Oh, oh, I see. So that only that stuff only matters when it happens to his team. I understand now. Moving on. No, no, I, no, you won't. You... The Martin challenge was was horrifying. horrifying. There broke are a refer- he broke a leg. There were referees there to send him off. It was a straight red. The referee did not do that. Right. Uh, that's that's not enough. the point. Yeah, you want Jurgen Klopp to 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 lambast his. It's, it's uh, what he does. If you hate when it happens against you, you should hate when you see it to anyone. Yeah, I but think he, I he'll think, save that outrage. I, you you go you go and hold every manager in the Premier League to that standard and see how it works out. But I don't need to. He's the only yeah, one who no, complains he, he, the way that he does. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He's the only manager that complains. He's the only the way manager, that he does. The way that he does. Relentlessly. Right? In the German 90 minutes. No, no. not. Yeah, it has he, nothing to do with him being German. No, no, no. It has yeah. everything to do with him being Jurgen Klopp. This you, is just you, how he is. You ever listen to Sean Dyche? I saw him and Jurgen Klopp just got into it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. You've been listening to Thomas Tuchel lately as well, right? And Ralph Rangnick. I'm not saying other managers yeah, don't complain. No, no, I'm no, saying but he's the, they don't complain like him. Why don't you just say he's the one that annoys you the most and just By leave far. it at that? By far, yeah, he does. it's a personal. No one's even close. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. There's an atmosphere in that. Um, let's see. One other thing that I wanted to mention about Manchester City, actually. Yes. Um, so speaking of managers moaning, and I'm a Pep guy. Like I, I love Pep Guardiola. Uh, big fan of his think he's brilliant great manager but he i don't know if you saw this he said something this past week in the wake of the the ferran torres sale to barcelona that kind of got my got my goad as they say a little bit uh-huh. um so pep said this uh about his, about their willingness manchester city's willingness to sell torres uh he said we are not a club like other teams when you want to leave and the ceo and president say no so it doesn't take a genius to figure out what he's referring to here. This is an obvious reference from Pep about Tottenham's refusal to sell Harry Kane. Um, and to that, I would say this. First off, I can't even believe that I have to say this, but... Wow, you're fa- really sl- slaying the sacred cows of the Premier League manager <laughs> hierarchy tonight, aren't you? But Ooh, JJ, this is this is silliness. Like, this is true. I can't believe that I have to say this, but... Uh, 
Ferran Torres is not Harry Kane. <laughs> like you'll, you'll have to excuse Tottenham for being a little stubborn when it came to selling arguably their most important player since Jimmy Greaves compared with Manchester City's willingness to sell a guy who has made 19 Premier League starts for you in a year and a half. Like, come on. Like, how how can he even make that comparison with a straight face? And second, let's say that Ferran Torres and Harry Kane were the same, that, that it was that level. Like, it also bears mentioning that Tottenham are not Manchester City. Like, if Tottenham lose Kane... What are we talking? Five, 10, 15 years before they get another striker even close to him? If City lose a player like that, we just got done talking about it. It doesn't matter. They replace him in the next window with someone arguably better if they don't already have that in reserves. So, like I read that, I was like, come on, man. You you're gonna you're gonna parade that narrative out there for the Ferran Torres sale and try to compare it to the frustration over Tottenham not selling Harry Kane? Like, give me a break. Ridiculous. Yeah. I think there's a certain um, arrogance to that that's grown out of the fact that most players they want, they can get. Yeah, that's true. And one other note on the, the Ferran Torres thing. From the Barcelona perspective, JJ, can we talk for a second about the fact that Barcelona just spent, I've seen multiple figures, either 55 million euros or 60 million euros. I've seen both to sign a guy who had just seven goals last season and two goals this season. Like uh, Fox soccer tweeted a graphic that this is the ninth most expensive signing in Barcelona's history. Where, where is this money coming from a and B why are they choosing to spend whatever little money they have? Like, I know they need a striker Sergio Aguero just retired, but like six, 60 million euros on this player for a club that we've been told is just like so financially strapped it's going to be hard for them to like to even move forward that is that was eye-opening to me yeah and but we're still not 100 percent sure how this is going to be financed um but i mean some of the stuff i read you know it'd be financed by a deal with some bank a loan from some bank i mean if you're going to get into the into loaning things i just i'm not sure about fern tires but a lot of people like him you know, he's highly regarded. He just hasn't had a run under under Pep Guardiola. So maybe this is actually, a, a, you know, a pretty prescient move by Barcelona. It remains to be seen. I can't believe it would cost that much for a guy who's barely playing. He's played I, four games. I know, but season. that's yeah, but that that that's not that's not necessarily an indicator of his talent, Andrew. It's an indicator of the the absolute size of the no, city but, squad and also the the kind of predilections of the manager and the things he likes to see from his players i guess but usually if a guy's not playing it will affect the sale the price on a player i mean 55 or 60 million whatever it is the ninth most expensive signing barcelona have ever made for a guy who's played four games this season your incredulity is duly noted sir um let's see wanted to mention um tottenham also playing today they get one point against southampton a lot of controversies in this one, but before I even mention any of that, it does, I, I do have to say this because there's been a lot of good feeling about the way things have started for Spurs under Antonio Conte. Um, and, you know, they're coming off 3-0 over Crystal Palace. You know, they, they're still unbeaten under Conte, seven straight. Uh, but one thing that did stand out to me, so JJ, against Crystal Palace um, over the weekend, Wilfried Zaha sent off in the 37th mm. with a red card. Um, versus Southampton, Mohamed Salisu sent off in the 39th. So doing the math now, over their last two matches, 
Tottenham have played roughly, give or take with stoppage time, 110 minutes up a man. And in those 110 minutes, they scored one goal. Yeah. Like things are going certainly better under Conte. No question about it. They're getting results. They're getting points. But like, this is not the finished product. This is still, I know, but this I, is still I, in the midst of, of figuring this out. And, and, and I do think that, that sometimes when a team loses a player, I mean, often that, that actually makes the job harder for, for the, for the other team, the, the team that is the man up because immediately they fall into that shell four, four, one. And the objective becomes very clear. It comes down to one sole thing being compact tight and clear in your lines and that's sometimes hard to play against and Southampton are a very well drilled side um, and if, if you look at how good Southampton were before the sending off they were excellent Andrew their pressing was very very good and then they couldn't press anymore because they were down a man and they defended very very well and could have easily won that on the break was it not for a brilliant Davinson Sanchez recovering tackle after Eric Dyer just gets robbed of the ball so I, I I don't agree with your analysis there. I think they're not the finished product, and you can probably base that on the fact of more so on how they played against the press machine that is Southampton before the man went down rather than anything that happened afterwards. I thought Tottenham were good afterwards. They were prolific. There were chances there. They were, they Doherty, were f- Doherty had an excellent chance, um, and, then, and then he set up, uh, was it Brian Heal, for another chance and that where he should have got the ball out of his feet and scored. So, you know... I just wonder if Tottenham are still trying to find their other gear in that I still feel like they're at their best as a kind of a counterattacking side. And like you said, when, when this, when this happens, when, you know, teams go down to 10 men against them and they, they become defensive armies. Like they just set up their, their wall and try to break through us. Tottenham don't have that other gear yet of how they can play against that. You might be right. Um, and, and their best play against Crystal Palace was in broken play, was on the break. But what I liked about it was, because people are going to say, well, they were a counter-attacking team, Tottenham were a counter-attacking team under Mourinho, and they were a counter-attacking team under, um, oh my God, I've forgotten his name, Nuno. Uh, <laughs> oh, Nuno, we hardly knew ye. Hey, you're talking about the August manager of the month, okay? <laughs> How dare you? Have some respect. But they were counterattacking under Nuno and Mourinho, but it was much more haphazard. This is much more coordinated. And I do think we're seeing the the fruits of Conte being able to get that extended break with them and almost have like an in-season preseason and work with them. I do think we're seeing that. But you're right, they're not they're not the finished article yet. And by the way, Conte's only finding out what he really wants in this of team. Of course. He might look at that team today and think, you know what, Matt Doherty deserves an extended run in the side. I know McDardy's not to every Tottenham fan's taste, but I thought he had a decent, you know, a decent outing. He did. I mean, some of his finishing was horrifying to watch. Well, again, we'll go back. How, how could it be any other way? He does not play anymore. He doesn't play. And that fin- and that affects your sharpness. But I thought he drove well. He, he did some nice things. I, I'm just saying, Conte is still trying to find his way. And I, I do think there's, there's decent signs. Um, I, I mentioned some of the controversies in this. So it ended one, one Tottenham had three disallowed goals in this game. Now the first one, the Ben Davies header, he was obviously offside. I'm not, it's, it was a good call. There was nothing wrong with it. The other two, um, 
I mean, look, I don't want to relitigate VAR and changes to VAR, things like that. But the one thing that I thought with Harry Kane's, the, the goal that he scored early in the second half that would have put them ahead, um, the changes that were made from the way VAR is, is used, um, I thought it was kind of, I thought the idea of it was that we would never see another armpit offside again. Yeah. And I don't know why suddenly today in a season where we hadn't seen them, why today it reared its head again. I don't, I don't even understand why it went to the VAR and I don't really, I don't really understand why they made the decision they did. I thought that it was clear if the lines overlap, then the goal counts. The benefit of the doubt is given to the attacker armpit offsides don't occur anymore, but that's, I mean, that's precisely what was ruled against Tottenham today. So I, I still don't fully understand that. I'm the commentary team. The commentary team didn't think it was offside. I didn't think it was offside, but you know, I mean, VAR has not been consistent in the last month or so, Andrew. So this is not really a shock. And then the, uh, the Fraser Forster, Matt Doherty incident. Um, if you want to call it a coming together, uh, I'm not quite as mad about that one because look, while I think it's sort of ridiculous for a goalkeeper to be completely bailed out on what was essentially calamitous goalkeeping, like to allow to like try to pocket that one rather than rise up and, and catch it above everyone else. Like it was, it was horrible goalkeeping. And the fact that he was bailed out from like a pretty soft foul is annoying, um, but, I, but it's the way the sport is officiated. Like goalkeepers are given those calls nine out of 10 times. Well, so I'm getting, I, I'm getting sick of it to be honest with you. Cause that was, that one was particularly soft. And I would go to our, our dear friend, uh, David Priest who okay. is now the head of goalkeeping at Sunderland, which is pretty amazing. We, we haven't even talked about that. He's been in the job a year. Wow, we're bad friends. And uh, David Priest says, not sure about that, inverted commas, foul on Forster, to be honest. And you know David, he is the, he's the head of the goalkeeper's union. He will defend keepers. He will defend, he will get into the weeds and the arguments about should have saved that, will be disappointed. He'll always defend the goalkeeper or most of the time he'll defend the goalkeeper. So when David's calling it like that, it's um it's probably not a foul. But I'm generally sick of it. I'm I'm I am sick, sick of, of what goalkeepers getting that call regardless. Well goal, goalkeepers are getting all these calls regardless. Yet you can have a, a goalkeepers and I'm not picking on Ederson, there are other keepers that do this who can fly out of their goals and uh. just hammer into people and nothing is ever done about that. But like challenging or even attempting to challenge the goalkeeper is such a taboo. In football, I think it needs to be, um, I think it needs to be looked at. I'm thinking of an FA Cup final, and I'll tweet it out. The video, it's in the 50s, Andrew. Now, I'm not asking to go back to this. I think it was Bolton <laughs> versus Blackpool in one of the. I think it might have been the the famous Stanley Matthews Cup final, where <laughs> the Bolton keeper catches the ball and is shoulder barged into the net with the ball, and the goal is allowed. And it's a great goal there for Bolton goalkeeper <laughs> hanging onto it. What was he doing? Oh, he'll have a sore head in the morning, that poor chap. Um, <laughs> I, I don't want to go back to that. I don't. But at the same time, these guys are completely mollycoddled. By the way, what is your favorite uh, time-wasting tactic that Fraser Forster uses? I'm curious. On well, his kickouts. To me, they're, the time-wasting, I, I texted you because you texted me about their time-wasting. And I said to you, it started in the 20th minute. Uh, and it, for me, I noticed it not as much with Fraser Forster although he was doing it certainly oh, but on on some of southampton's throw-ins i was like is there is anyone going to take this or are we just <laughs> going to sit here for like another minute like i love i love forster because he's got his routine down andrew uh-huh. it's so good so first of all stroll as slowly as you can to retrieve the ball like 
and he's a big man. He is a lummox. So he goes as slow as <laughs> he is. He's super tall. That guy. Possible. Right. And he just lollops back and he squeezes the ball and then he sets it down, puts his foot underneath it so he can get that height. Then he steps back. And the next thing, it's time to clean the muck from between my cleats. And so he has a scratch of that. And I haven't seen him doing it in a while, but when he was at Celtic, he used to, he used to do the back heel against the goalpost before he take it to mm. get rid of the dirt from the bottom. Uh, it's just a production with him. <laughs> Absolute production. And look, I, it's, it's annoying for me. I was more annoyed by it when it was happening in the 20th minute. So I was like, for, it was still 11 V 11 at that point. It's like, are, is this really how this game is going to be after the red card? I, I do. I almost, I kind of get it. I don't like oh, it, sure. but I get it. It's one of those things that any, any team would do. No one's rushing to take a free kick yeah. when you're down a man in a tight game. But like in the 20th minute, I got to wait, you know, a minute and a half for someone to come over to take a throw. And it's like, okay, this is, this is a bit much. Um, but yeah, one, one Tottenham, Southampton at ends in a draw. Let's uh, stay in North London, JJ Arsenal. They roll past Norwich five nil. And um, it's interesting what you, you, you did the rundown for this one and you put uh, hard to deny that this is much better from the gunners, but they should be winning this kind of game. Right. Yeah. And, uh, which and I, I, I like that question. Um, Cause yes, they should be, but that, but that also doesn't necessarily mean that they should be winning at five nil. No. And, but I, I think, you know, I've seen lots of good things from this from this Arsenal side, particularly the way it's set up. Like Ordegaard has been really good in the last few weeks as a creative force. Martinelli too. Yeah. Um, Saka really coming into a bit of form. Lacazette, that kind of forward quartet is really working. And the team looks good. There's, there's just no question. Tierney got his goal as well. Um, but there's a lot of Arsenal fans who I'm friends with who I respect. And they're just so nervous about this right now because they have the same reservations that I do. Now, they had a really tough start to the season. And I suppose now that they're emerging and they're in a really good position, they, they're just anxious that this is real, that this is the real thing. And we're not going to know that for a while. We really aren't. But right now, I mean, you've, you've got to be pleased. But more than anything, it's, it's, it's the style and the patterns and the things that they're doing that gives you confidence. Albeit it's against a team that now really looks sunk considering today's result as well, where palace just battered Norwich as well. I mean, Nor- Norwich are, they're gone. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard to see a way back for them now. Um, they, but they I- JJ, when this is all said and done, um, and I'd have to, I'm saying this right now without really taking any kind of like deep dive on it, but they may go into that category of, of one of the worst premier league teams I've seen, which makes me look like such a complete, like it's all about me, obviously makes me look like such a complete fool. Cause I like the business that they'd done. Um, and I like the players that got, they got in. I like Milet Rashika. Um, you know, I, and I like their manager, <laughs> their former manager, Daniel Fark. And I thought, God, they could do something, but um, but no, defensively, ah, is... oh, defensively, Andrew, they're they're so far off it. It's not much better in attack. It's not, but like they're horrible. You, they're horrible. They, they're center they're a horrible back, team. Gibson, Quebec. Uh, I don't know how Umabamadeli can't get a look in in there. I know Grant Hanley's out, but um, you know. 
God, they're bad. Yeah. Um, back to Arsenal for a sec. Uh, yeah. I, oh, by the way, spend plenty of time in Arsenal because they're our Arsenal listeners not happy with the amount of Arsenal praise that we give. Oh, really? Uh, I thought that didn't we just well, whatever. We don't need to rehash. No, it. no we've been effusive, but it's it's not yeah. enough. It will okay. never be enough. They no. did. Their fan base has turned into like I don't know. They, it's uh, just not enough for them. Um, I, I'm sorry. I don't. I feel like we've been pretty. I don't know. I feel like abusive been, in our praise. Yeah, to a certain extent, certainly. Uh, so back to your your initial question of, of they should be winning this kind of game, right? Uh, this this win for them five 0 over Norwich is their largest away league win since August fifteenth, two thousand nine. Over a decade ago, 6-1 against Everton. Get out. So, like, that's, again, it's Norwich, who I I literally just got done saying is one of the worst Premier League teams I've ever seen. Um, But but still. Arsenal have played a lot of other relegated teams in that time. They on the road. And they haven't done this. So, like, it's it's a sign of something. They're clicking. Like, they look cohesive. Um, And, you know, it's interesting, too, JJ, because this is all coinciding with Obama Yang's ousting from the starting 11. Now I'll say it again, depth is going to matter, but let's just say like, to me, I, I kind of look at Arsenal and say, they found it. Like they found their 11. I don't see a route back in for this guy. No, I, now guys are going to get hurt. COVID yep. is going to happen. And assuming he's still with them and he's not loaned out during the January transfer window, which by the way, I wouldn't rule out. Um, but assuming he's still with them, he'll probably play again. Be through some kind of circumstance um but it, it won't be by design like I, I think that this is their best 11 and he is not a part of it and and there's also the factor that he was club captain and this is a club that by and large if you look through the team it, it's got a young vibe to it the last thing you want is a guy who's not doing it up front first of all he's not scoring or not scoring at the rate that he used to so he's not giving you anything on the field and off the field he's not giving you the 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 leadership that young players need right and arteta in fairness arteta gave him just enough rope to hang himself here you know he he indul- he didn't indulge him but he let bygones be got bygones with what happened at the, the north london derby last year but he's made the right decision here. It's hard to argue that he hasn't. No, and and fortunately for him, and I know that Aubameyang has a little bit of versatility in his game in terms of you know where you want to play him, but um, Martinelli has come in and the goals have have come. Like if he if he then came in and wasn't scoring or he was struggling, then it would kind of force Arteta's hand that he might have to put Aubameyang back in uh, into the lineup. But that has not been the case. Like he has he's been given a nice pathway to kind of leave this guy in exile martinelli's a strange one because i think it was last season in the carabao cup i watched him against liverpool i thought how he was just really looked a really really good player and he got a little run but then generally was kind of not in the plans for arteta and i know he had a a couple of knocks or injuries if i recall correctly but he was he didn't seem to be he seemed to be slipping out of favor or down the pecking order so it's I think he's a really good player, and it was a. It's interesting to see now that he's he's found his spot in this site. Yeah, Arsenal uh, five consecutive wins across all competitions for the first time since it won eleven straight uh, from August to October of two thousand eighteen. So they are very much clicking, and to have seen what they looked like after the first three games, three losses, zero goals, 
Um, I did not see this coming. I thought they would be fine, but I mean, right now, if you're, you know, if you're putting out the odds, I haven't looked to see what the actual odds are of finishing top four, but they would be most people's favorite right now. Now I know Tottenham have those two games at hand against Burnley and Brighton. And if they win both of those, which is not easy, but if they do, they'd be a point ahead of Arsenal. So it's things are going to look weird if you look at the table uh, because of teams having matches postponed. But I mean, Arsenal are every bit in that race, maybe the front runner for it. And a lot of people, their own fans included, by the way, who don't think we praise them enough. No one on earth was essing on this team more than their own fans. Uh, right. For the record, um, no one saw this coming. And so I give this group of players a lot of credit for not hanging their heads and i give this manager a lot of credit right now i was watching uh nbcsn today in their in their dying days jj as uh, as soon the the, sh- the shop heads over to the usa network but i think i'm trying to remember who they robbie earl and robbie musto were doing their teams of the season manager of the season one of them had i think it was robbie earl that had mikel arteta as his manager of the season so far who would who would who was saying that after the first month of the season that's an incredible turnaround in a short amount of time. Yeah, we've got uh, the SBIs in front of us now. So uh, Arsenal are uh, fourth position, 81.9% uh, on the FBI, uh, SPI, excuse me. Uh, so finish fourth? Um, yes. How much percent? 80 in the 80s? The SPI, 81.9. Wow. That's like... Tottenham are at 78.3. Okay. In their position, uh, wait. So how does the the SPI is? So it has Manchester City at top ninety three point seven, Liverpool in second at ninety two point two, then in fourth eighty nine point four for Chelsea and Arsenal eighty one point nine. This is to finish top four. Is that what? Seems like you're confused, and now I'm confused, and I would imagine a lot of our listeners are too. This is. Uh, might have to. Let's just sit here and watch JJ think. I don't know what this means. <laughs> uh, moving on. Are you ready to move on? No. JJ's still thinking. Well, I'm going to move on. If you do, in fact, figure out what's going on as you have this chart. In oh, front hang of you. on a sec. <clears throat> uh, Arsenal to qualify for the Champions League. The percentage is a 44%. That makes more sense. Mm. 81.9 but, feels but, like a virtual lock. Uh, the SBI will be, I suppose, the points that they'll, the likely, the, the tracking of the points, um, which, uh, which has them at 81.9 in fourth position. Uh, to qualify for the Champions League, 44, but then Tottenham to qualify for the Champions League, 22%, and Manchester United, 18%. Hmm. Um, so they are so going off of that. It took us. We took the scenic route, but eventually we got to the fact that they are definitely the front runner according well, to the SPI. Well, Chelsea, Liverpool, and Manchester City to qualify for well, UC, those are live, yeah. 95, 99, and ninety nine. I don't include them. Like the first three are are pretty much done. It's it's that fourth spot is what is available. Yeah, and Arsenal are tracking for the predicted sixty six points. Manchester City ninety one points. Liverpool, 83 points. Chelsea, 79 points. Okay. Uh, Speaking of Chelsea, JJ, they get it done. They beat Aston Villa. Um, 3-1 is your final. Important win for them. 
if they are going to remain a part of this title race, which I mean, look, if it's over for Liverpool, I don't know what that means for Chelsea, but it ain't good. Um, I want to talk a little bit about Christian Pulisic. He's a player we sometimes mention on this show. He comes up occasionally. Yeah. So um, there's been a little bit of frustration from supporters of his American supporters uh, in terms of how he's being used, how much he's being played. And and I guess that's not necessarily lost on Thomas Tuchel who spoke about it um, because he's being used now. What is kind of a false nine, I guess up front for, uh, for Chelsea he was and then when Lukaku came on he went into a wider position and did better which is Um, a more natural position for him yes Uh, but Tuchel said is it his very best position up front where he feels most comfortable maybe not it is the way at the moment but he is very positive about it and he's fighting for his confidence and for the flow while he is fighting we're supporting him Um, let me uh, here's just a random question that I have for you about Pulisic so I'm going to give you five options on how you'd say his move to Chelsea has gone so far. And you tell me which one you think most accurately describes it. Really good, good, average, bad, disastrously bad. Um, somewhere between average and good. Really? Okay. Yeah. I would be more somewhere between average and bad. Really? Trending towards bad. Yeah. I'm... <laughs> I'm still optimistic, which is... He's had good moments. Yeah. But and, and, and you can't... Just the injuries, if you're going to get injured that often, it's never going to be good. Truly yeah, good. You're right. And that's obviously been the biggest factor in it because every time he's gained traction, it's kind of been set back by an injury. And then he has to re-earn a spot within the 11. And now he's being played in spots that aren't natural to him. I just don't... I'm kind of now hitting that point where I think he's got to go. I don't know where exactly. I know there were Barcelona rumors again, not sure how they pay for it, but apparently money isn't a real thing. They could just do whatever. Um, I I don't. And by the way, I don't know that that's a great idea either with the state of that club right now. Uh, So I don't know. I'm not sure what the answer is as to where he should be, but I'm starting to think that it ain't there. I, I would tend to agree with you, Andrew. Um, He's got to go somewhere where he is loved and will play regularly. But again, the variable is just these these injuries, and and some of them have been due to his commitment to the U.S. Men's National Team. Um, and I like it has taken a a a COVID related and injury related moment for Chelsea for him to get regular games and even then it's not in his proper position right um and and that that's a huge worry uh, Thomas Tuchel said is it his very best position up front where he feels most comfortable maybe not it is the way at the moment but he is very positive about it and he is fighting for his confidence and for the flow while he is fighting we're supporting him just kind of vague kind of stuff fighting for his confidence and for the flow. I get what he means by the flow. The flow is a run of games and it's amazing how even a finely tuned professional footballer, if he's out and he's, or he hasn't been playing for whatever reason, how hard it is to find that match rhythm again. And it's even harder when you're not playing in the position that you're used to. I've seen flashes even this season for Chelsea where he's linked up really well with Hakim Ziyech and you think, yeah, this is working but he's got to go somewhere where he's consistently the guy 
and he plays regularly. It's really that simple. And we're probably repeating ourselves on, on Pulisic at this point. I'd be curious for listeners of, uh, of the show. Tell us, because like I'm sitting here saying, I don't know where that place is necessarily that he'd be best suited to play. I'd like to know what the people think, like what people who maybe know even more about, about you know how other teams are set up than what we know that you think where he he fit in seamlessly where it would just work cuz i i I'm, I'm curious to hear suggestions on it cuz like again it's it's not an indictment of his talent every time i watch him play um you see things about him that that are impressive that like you know his his quickness his quick feet in the box i always say like i, I just know if he's healthy and the us are in a world cup he's going to draw an important penalty i just know it it's going to happen um but he just, like you said, with Tuchel, the flow, the consistent run of games, what's his right position. Um, uh, if people know what that team is, where you think it would all click and, and, he, and all those boxes would be ticked, I'm curious to hear it, genuinely. Um, I think people are curious to hear uh, what the hell I was talking about with the uh, 538 uh, SPI and that. Oh, we're going back. The SPI is this, like their team rating, which they, I'm not going to read how they generate it, but it, what, okay. it is, JJ, it is not the points. Okay, I figured I that you that mentally you were still there when you reread the Tuchel quote that I had read a couple minutes earlier. Uh, Did I really there. read that again? <laughs> oh my god! I figured that you had gone someplace. Wow! Uh, but it's okay because the quote was important <clears throat> and it it bared repeating. Why didn't you say what an idiot? Why are you repeating this? I was gonna let it go, but I yeah I, I still now am bringing it up anyway because. I was yeah. trapped in a, in a world of numbers, Andrew. It's, it's not a comfortable wood or forest for me to be in. Um, speaking of Tuchel, uh, he has now kind of joined the chorus of, of voices um, <laughs> that are. I heard that... him interviewed after the Villa game. He literally didn't answer a question about the game. It all went back to the five substitutions, the way things are, the, the, the schedule. Everything. So can we, can we talk about this for a sec? Yeah. So. The schedule, the festive period, mm. games on top of games. Um, this has clearly become, I mean, among the most polarizing issues in this sport. It's like it's right there with like VAR and then this. I feel like is like the second most controversial issue is is the fixture list, especially at this time of year. And I'm curious for your perspective on this because. For me, I would say this feels like a relatively new development, not like this year, but I'd say in the last three, four, five years, this has become more of a talking point. It's gotten more anger out of certain managers. And I'm just wondering, you know, when you go back to the 90s, like, mm. was this always a thing? Was this always a source of, of anger? No from managers in this sport because it doesn't it hasn't felt that way to me, but I'm curious what you think. I'm trying to remember managers talking out about it, and I'm sure there was a few who said, you know, this is a lot, but it's only really recently with foreign managers who come in and are just um, baffled and worried and concerned, Pep Guardiola, Jurgen Klopp in particular, about what it does to the players long term. And um, they they don't. What I always heard here's the way it was framed in the '90s and the early 2000s. What an amazing time of the year for supporters! This is just brilliant that they can get to see, you know, so many games 
and it's part of the tradition and footballers actually like it. And if you listen to the old footballers, they say how much they loved it because they didn't have to train. You literally played games, played game, recover, play games. But Andrew, the game was so much slower then. It was, it was, I cannot tell you how, you have to go back really and watch the games and, and to see the pace at which it was played. The players were, um, physically, they were nowhere near what they are right now. They just weren't. Right. Even in like towards the end of the 90s, if you look at some of the players uh, that 90, you know, 98, 99, even around United's treble era, you look at them and the, their body shapes are completely changed now. They're like, they're absolutely ripped. No, they're whereas, like chiseled statues. Whereas now. there was always a kind of a little rounding at the tummy when, when players would come back from summer. Uh, I remember, so the Liverpool, in, I think it was 94, 95, I, I got Shoot Magazine because it had the squad photos. And this week's shoot in, 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 in August had Liverpool, right? And it was, they were at preseason in the new kit. So they were just, this was literally taken a week ago or maybe four or five days ago, and they're sat on the benches, and I opened it up, and I look at it, and I look at, like, Neil Ruddock, and I look at, um, who else was there? Paul Stewart. And they've got bellies, fat bellies like my dad. And I'm looking at them, and I'm thinking, oh, a bit weird, yeah, a bit yeah. strange. But preseason was when you got fit. Right. You could the summer they went, they drank, they did whatever they wanted. So they were they were not fast. They were not as quick. The ball wasn't moving as quick. There was not the same kind of shearing, twisting and turning motions. It was a slower game. So you didn't hear it. And, and the demands were less. Um, but now it's it, it's it's completely different. The elements of sports science, what we know about about playing games and what it does to players has completely uh, revamp the thinking of so are you saying that it has to change that these managers are right i i tend to think that there should like if you want to see the best players and if it's about player welfare then have your games on the 26th but like to play two days later on the 28th and then again on the 30th or the, you know 31st and then and then fa cup and everything thrown into it, it it's it's probably not good from you know the science tells us it's probably not good now um if you were to do the 26th and the 28th or the 26th have a full calendar on the 26th and 27th and then have your break then maybe that's a good thing to do like i heard ali mccoist on on talk sport saying oh yeah, yeah why are they complaining why they, this is a british tradition and i'm like well Scotland has had on and off, but it has had since 1998. From 1998 to 2003, Scotland had a winter break. Mm. You know, they took a break and then they reinstituted it in 2017. I, I don't see why this is so anti. You can still have your Boxing Day calendar and a nice Christmas calendar and a break. Like, I don't see it that it has to be one or the other. You can figure it out. Um, and and th I think they should try to do it. But now there's another thing that's come into this is you know, because of COVID, you're hearing Ragnick and well, mainly Tuchel and Klopp talking about having five substitutions like they have on the continent. And you're seeing games called off. We know that Everton's game against, uh, I think, Newcastle is going to be called off now. Um, so, you know, the games are falling by the wayside. And I was reading John Nicholson 
who was saying that all this is what he, the point he was making that this shouldn't really be happening these these postponements he said all clubs regularly field players who are not in the first team squad those reserve team squads are there to play for the first team when the occasion demands well the occasion now demands they do these are players who can be fielded more than that these are players who would bloody love to be fielded they'd love to prove themselves they can't be that bad they wouldn't be on the club's books if they were let's see them if your first team squad is tired from the exertions of playing too much football or is infected with COVID, here's your answer. Play other players. There. How hard is that? You've likely got over 20, over 20, under 23 players on the books. Play them instead. I'm coming around to that. These under 20, that, yeah. under 23 squads. And it'd be a supreme leveler. Could you imagine? Some of the bigger clubs, the bigger clubs and the bigger club supporters won't want this. I know Liverpool fans won't want it. Chelsea fans won't want it. City really aren't affected so far by any of this, by the way. But they they won't want it. I, just, I think it's a good thing. I do find I, it a little bit interesting or even puzzling that the clubs that seem to be most uh, put off with this fixture list are the clubs that have far and away the deepest squats. Mm. Um, that is, but, but they're if, the ones challenging for things, and they want... They want their full first team squads out. That's what it's about. So they'll remain competitive. It's not that they actually can't fulfill the fixtures. You, you, we can, like, just as we laid out there, there's at least 20 under 23 players. Bring them in. Mm-hmm. Like we saw what Liverpool were able to do, how they could, were able to shuffle the pack for the Carabao Cup quarterfinal against Leicester and still put in a decent performance, albeit they brought on senior players at halftime. Okay. But there was still, look at the starting lineup. Look at the finishing lineup. Players like Owen Beck, Connor Bradley started, Tyler Morton, the aforementioned. I, I, I just think they, they obviously don't want to do it, Andrew, and we know why they don't want to do it. Uh, if I was forced to take a position on this, hmm. uh, count me as someone that enjoys this time of year. I'm I a fan, enjoy- and I love, now I'm in a, I'm in a time in my life currently where it's tough because I've got a couple kids and I I just can't be tied to the couch as much as I would like to be. But I remember how I felt before I had kids and I absolutely loved this. Um, So I get it. I do get why there are managers, but like if we were taking a poll of fans, I would, I would vote, please keep it this way. This is really, really fun. Um, Yeah. I, I, I think so. I think if you were to take a, a poll of sports physios and science people, um, they wouldn't quite feel that way. But, you know, the other argument is supporters love this. It's, it's an amazing thing. And if you need to shuffle your pack, shuffle your pack. Do it. Yeah. You've got the reserves there. And that's the argument that John Nicholson is making and Gary Neville is making too. Uh, one final one to get to here, JJ. You mentioned Ralph Ragnick. Uh, we should talk about Manchester United after they get a 1-1 draw against mm. Newcastle. A Newcastle side that looked, it wasn't just like, oh, United dominate, dominate, dominate. Oh, Newcastle eke a goal. You know, it wasn't like that. Like Newcastle played pretty well in this game. This was a, a little bit of an eye-opener from uh, a standpoint of United's performance, I thought. Yeah, I, just to mention Newcastle first, uh, Joe Linton as a number eight in midfield. Mm-hmm. Um, and the praise he got, there was an interview afterwards with Sean Longstaff where he's like, the, the, the way people have d- 
disrespected this guy as being a disgrace. And look how well he's played in midfield in the last two games. I thought that it's good that he defends his teammate. You should also mention that Joe Linton has, or, has generally been seen as a failure, as a striker, which he was bought as a striker. So right. there's a little bit of revisionism there. But Ranić uh, was pretty scathing. This is not Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, Andrew. He was asked about the performance. Uh, he said, I didn't like it at all. And then he went on to say, today was not a question of formation. It was a question of how aggressive we were. In three days, we have the next game. We can do better, but we have to do it. We shouldn't look for excuses. We need to be better and get more physical. I was not happy with our performance with the ball or when we had to press. Hmm. What kind of energy mode do we play with the ball and without the ball? It's just not good. And uh, the beatings continued in the Sky Sports studio afterwards. Uh, Gary Neville took aim. Oh, friendly fire. Bruno, finally. (laughs) He took aim at Bruno Fernandes and Ronaldo. Uh, Context to this is that both Ronaldo and Bruno Fernandes ran off down the tunnel without applauding the way support at St. James's Park. Now, apparently, Marcus Rashford did the same. I don't know. But really, Neville wasn't talking about that so much. He was talking about the body language of... Ronaldo and Bruno Fernandes in the team. And this is what he had to say. And this was interesting. It's, an, it's annoyed me for about two months. Your best players in this team. It's devastating when those players, Ronaldo and uh, Bruno, are giving that look and that body language toward the younger ones. They have to help them. They have to be their father, their grandparent in the team. I made massive mistakes as a young player at Manchester United, but I had great senior players who would have a go at me but would also put their arm around me and help me. I don't get the feeling that's happening. I think there is something wrong there. Now, we have, we've talked for years on this podcast about the Ronaldo glare. Yeah. How many it's, times Gareth Bale has been pierced with it? Yeah. And Gareth Bale, a senior pro at Real Madrid when he was getting that, one of the world's best players when he was on the end of it. Yeah. I have to say, when Ronaldo was signed and we did the emergency podcast, the amount of, you know, because I was very skeptical about this signing. The amount of people, though, United fans who were trying to convince me that not only would he be good for the club, Andrew, as a player, but he'd be good for the younger players. That he would, they'd learn so much off him, and he'd be this leader in the. I mean, we were already being told after the first game what a leader in the locker room he was going to be. Like, who have they watched this guy for for the last what seventeen years or twenty years of his career, whatever? Ronaldo is about Ronaldo, and that's part of his genius that he is solely focused on his performance and how he plays and what he does. Everything revolves around him. He's not a generous player. He's not a team player. He can be put in a team and make a team better. Sure. But he's not going to be the kind of leader that's coming over to the guys. And tr- He's solely focused, singularly focused on himself. It's amazing the, the nonsense that builds up around this guy. And I, I watched, a, you know, I've been watching the Juventus documentary. And there's this scene. And it's... Uh, it's halftime against Porto when they're, they're about to be knocked out of the Champions League. I think it's the first leg or the second leg. doesn't matter. Ronaldo's in there arguing. And all he has to contribute is this like hissy fit at halftime. There's no instruction. He's just telling everyone that they're playing poorly. But there's no, there's no sense of leadership from him whatsoever. 
And then I'm on Twitter and I see someone tweet it and it, above it is, look at Ronaldo. This is how much he wants to win. Elite mentality. It's just nonsense. Who, like... It's kind of, I mean, into, stuff like that can be like an inkblot test where you can see what you want to see. Oh, come on. You know <laughs> like, what leadership is and you know it when you see it. I'm watching um, Man in the Arena, uh, the Tom Brady documentary on ESPN. I mean, it's so I'm glad you bring cheese night and day. I'm glad you bring him up because that is what I was going to bring up because it's interesting with with someone like Tom Brady, because in terms of on field mannerisms, there are times when Brady and Ronaldo look very similar to me, Mm. the way Brady like a guy will will run the wrong route and like Brady will berate him. Yeah. In front of everyone, which most quarterbacks don't do. Usually they kind of pat the guy on the butt and like try to be like Brady's not that guy. But by the same token, every player that you've ever heard talk about Tom Brady, they worship him. They yes. adore him. They love him. They all say he's the greatest teammate. And yeah, I don't know. You know, so there's a way to do it, I guess. And like if you you can berate a guy, I suppose. You can roll your eyes at a guy if you're Ronaldo, you can throw your arms up in the air in frustration. Um, but like that needs to be counterbalanced with the other side of it. Like, like what Gary Neville was talking about, the putting the arm around. If you're only doing one half of that, that is poison to a team. To I, team chemistry. I, I completely agree with you. And, and, and for what it's worth, I should say, I don't know what's going on at their training. He might. It, like, it, Neville it, probably it, does. Fair point. Neville probably does. And, but again, you know, we've seen enough of Ronaldo to know what he is to know what a legendary player he is and to know that he's a singular figure. It's interesting that you bring up Gary Neville. Um, I don't know if you saw, but uh, NBCSN, again, in between Meekum airings, they were showing uh, that show Soccer Box oh, with Gary so Neville. Good. It's so good. It's fantastic. I just basically, I, I saw it was on last night, a whole, like a marathon of it. And Ooh. I went through the list of different players and the ones that looked interesting to me, I just hit DVR, DVR. So I got a whole like backlog right now. Oh, on my oh DVR. Andrew. Gorge upon it. I've got Robbie Keane in there. I've got Berbatov in there. But the oh. one that was on when I turned it on last night, it was uh, with Wayne Rooney. And that one, I think usually they're 30 minutes. That one was an hour. Ooh. And it was really interesting because there was a part when Neville is talking to Rooney. They're sitting next to each other as they do on the show. And they're reflecting on a moment when Rooney was young. He was a superstar. Uh, I don't remember. I turned it on in the middle of the conversation. But Rooney had done something. I can't remember what it was. But it was something controversial at United. And and bad publicly. I don't know if it had to do with his contract. Oh, that's when he tried to get out on the eve of a Champions League game. And so, uh, and so Gary Neville talked about how him and Ryan Giggs, uh, after this happened, they pulled him aside in, I guess, the weight room. It was like just the three of them. Yeah. And Giggs and Neville apparently let Rooney, <laughs> let him have it. That was that was he. It was the it was 2010, I think, and he on the on the night before a Champions League game, he had a, he leaked through his agent that he was looking to leave. He wasn't signing his contract. He was going to move on. That was it. Was that it? Because was Neville still there at that point? Uh, ooh, good. Uh, 20, I thought it was something 10, earlier. 2010, he would have been. Oh, 910, he would have been. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, maybe it was then that they were talking about. But but it was funny to watch them talk about it now. Like now they were kind of like Wayne Rooney still had a very sheepish look to him like he he clearly still like revered neville in some way it felt to me watching this where like he knew he was wrong and he was he got an undressing from gigs and neville but he still respected those guys and and 
you know, it's important for that kind of leadership to exist where players can do that with younger players and still be respected and revered. And I don't know, maybe that's not, maybe that doesn't exist in United's culture right now. Yeah. And, and, and unfortunately it's the week of very fortunately and, and delightfully it's the week that Alex Ferguson turns 80. He turns 80, I think uh, at the end of this week and, um, the Athletic did a long piece. Adam Kraft and our friend did a piece on what made him so great. And, and one of the details was he never allowed click, clicks to form in the club. Like there would be no Portuguese click, no Spanish click. And at preseason training, there was a, a group of Spanish and young Spanish players that were in, the, in and around the squad. And they were all sat together at a table. And Roy Keane got up and made sure every one of them moved. So they were mixing with the rest of the first team squad. I, I guess it must have been around the PK era um, when he was at United. And so he made sure he, they were all mixed up. You know, who's the guy in the locker room is going to do that right now for Manchester United? I don't see. See, it's tough because to me, you know, again, not in the room, but for, as an outsider, I would look at it and say, I think that responsibility is probably Harry Maguire's like that. But if you're struggling, or if you're not, you know, if you've got Ronaldo in that room, who yeah. is this magnetic force, uh, that's a hard thing to compete with. Like Harry Maguire's word can only maybe go so far when Ronaldo is also in that room. And it can't if your go best anywhere. player isn't also a leader. That can be tough. And, and it's so hard when you're playing badly as Maguire is, who is just right having the worst hangover from the Euros possible. It's very hard then for him to be that guy, to be that voice because players, you know what they're like players. The minute someone pipes up, who's not doing his job, they're just thinking straight away. They roll their eyes. They roll their eyes. Yeah. Tough, tough situation. I'll tell you what, let's take a break. When we come back, we'll do a little bit of reflection, JJ on uh, the year that was and what we're most looking forward to in the year to come. Lots of caught offside still to go. Don't go anywhere. Oh, back now on caught offside. JJ, as is the case um, for a lot of people during you know this time of year, you're off from work, you stay up maybe a little later. This is like this is a big time binge watching show season, I would say. Yes. And so I recommendations from a lot of people. I finally got around to binging the show uh, Lupin or Lupin on uh, on netflix have not even heard of it you've not even shared it with me phenomenal really? absolutely loved it highly give me, recommend give, don't give me a synopsis no spoilers but what is the what is the story about uh so it, it takes place in france in paris and it's um a it's got a little bit of a an ocean's 11 feel to it um uh, what else would I say about it? I don't know. I don't, I don't want to give away too much. He's, I mean, I, this isn't my description. This is the guy, how, how he fashions himself as a gentleman criminal. And he's great. Like the main character is just like, I don't know. He's just got this screen presence that he's just, he's awesome. And the show is fun. It's got, like I said, it's an, there's an ocean's 11 feel to it of just like watching kind of like mastermind crimes go down and then see how they're deconstructed. And it's, it's a very fun, really, really fun show. I loved it. Um, Subtitles. So you can do it however you want. Don't dub. Don't, don't tell me you're dubbing. So what I didn't realize when it first started, uh, it was dubbed. Uh, that was the automatic setting. 
And I was like, what, what is this? So I switched it. I wanted it in French with English subtitles. I prefer it like that. That feels more authentic to me. Yeah. Um, so that's how I did it. So I don't know what other people do, but I, I listened to it in French with English subtitles. So that, that was my way, but it's funny. I bring it up, not just because to, to put the recommendation out there in case people haven't seen it, but you ever had these moments, JJ, where you're like, you're almost subconsciously reminded what a huge fan of the sport you are sure so for me i'm watching the show i am completely engrossed in the show and it gets there's two seasons only five episodes per season um i think it was renewed for a third season too actually but so i'm at the season finale of the first season and it's a this is like it's intense what is going on and it's i'm into it i'm totally engrossed and it's set in uh le harve i guess is how you say it on the french coastline and so as soon as they said that (laughs) I know it immediately Bob Bradley. Me, yes, it took me out of the show. And I was like, hey, that's wait a minute. That's where Bob Bradley coached. Leon and then Maris. I'm in, and then I'm in that. And I'm like, I'm like, when they're showing different scenes from in this town, I'm like, where's the stadium? Like, I wonder where Bob, I wonder if Bob hung out. There. <laughs> it's so distracting. You and I'm like, this- God, you love this sport too much. Like, enough. Just be in the show. Stop thinking about Bob Bradley. It's so it, uh, it the same thing happened to me with Better Call Saul. <laughs> there's a, a won't ruin it for anyone. There's a group of German workers who come over, and obviously, Better Call Saul is the prequel series to um, Breaking Bad. So it's back in time further. Mm. So, and the German workers come over, and one of them has a Borussia Dortmund jersey on him, and I look it up, and I'm like, they bloody nailed it. They got because it was the exact date. It totally tracks that that would be the era jersey he was working. The timeline was perfect. Oh, the yeah. wardrobe absolutely got it 100% right. Early to th- early to mid 2000s, just spot on. Yeah, just excellent work. And I immediately, I love the show anyway, but I immediately thought that the show was 100% better. So it actually helped. See, for me, it took just the mere fact that they chose that city as the setting. It took me out of the show. And I started thinking about bleeping Bob Bradley. I started thinking did uh, of, of old Dortmund players and who would have worn this jersey. <laughs> so I had to pause it. I literally had to pause because you so, can't. Yeah, it took you out of the show, too. Yeah, but it was but it made me respect much. it even more. So there we are. Uh, speaking of Bob Bradley, JJ, I did want to mention one thing that is kind of like news unfolding sort of as the hours progress unfolding wads of cash he might Am have right? yeah you're exactly right it's it's why this is happening i i have to assume he might have an unbelievable player at his disposal at toronto fc in lorenzo insigne uh it looks like now this is all but done that he'll be joining toronto fc from napoli in the summer wow what <laughs> incredible uh, uh, he scored 10 goals and 53 caps for italy uh, obviously, a, a huge part of them winning the Euros just this past summer. One of my uh, favorite players to watch. Yeah, 11 goals across 30 Champions League games for Napoli as well. I mean, this is a player still in his prime. That is, it sounds like, if you believe what you're seeing right now from Fabrizio Romano, whoever, it sounds like this is good as done, that he's going to be coming to MLS this summer. 11, 11 million euros per season guaranteed. 4.5 million at euros uh, linked to personal goals targets five year five and a half year contract details are being discussed right now uh the latest was just 45 minutes ago so Fabrizio said (laughs) 
It's not done, but the club are working on it. Toronto need to terminate Josie Altidore contract for 7 million, but 4.5 million euro have been proposed to the striker to part ways. So they got to buy out Josie. Josie is now literally collateral in this in this move, which is not something that now there's been rumors swirling that they've Toronto have also gotten in. I don't know financially how this would work. I don't think it can work on Bellotti from Torino. Mm. <laughs> that was the other rumor. Now the the Insigne is much more concrete. Were they to do this, it would be the single biggest scoop of two. Uh, talents that we've seen in a long time. It would also be very, very weird for, I know uh, Sebastian Javinko was called back in to the Italian squad briefly and then was left out of the playoff against Sweden in qualifying for the last World Cup, which they did not qualify for. But this would be, how shall I say, frowned upon for two players just touching 30 to be coming to MLS, there would be people in Italy for whom this would be unforgivable and that it would damage their chances of being in the squad should they qualify for Qatar 2022. Yeah, they may be preparing for reality in which they're not a part of the upcoming Uh, World Cup. That's not it, obviously. I don't know, but I imagine a scene where Mancini is in the kitchen and he's frying sausages and he turns around and in comes Insigne and Bellotti. And he looks at them and he goes, now i got to turn my back on you. Because Italy is not a country that will... Uh... Like the end of the movie Munich? No, it's the, it's the end of Goodfellas, one of the Uh-oh. end scenes in Goodfellas. Because that happens at the end of Munich too, in that scene with, with Jeffrey Rush when he comes to the United States to try to bring back Eric Bana's character says, no, come to my house, have dinner. Isn't that you're a stranger in a strange land? And, and Jeffrey Rush says, no. Well, at least my reference was vaguely linked to Italian or American culture. You're right. But, I'm uh, sorry, everyone. But listen, I'm excited for the idea of him coming, but I'm also disappointed because I think he's got more to offer at the highest level in Europe yet. But apparently what he's asking are, you know, in a COVID-constricted financial world in football, there aren't too many suitors for Insigne. Yeah, I, I would say that this does not fall into the category. Sometimes we talk about you know MLS moving away from the model of bringing uh, aging European stars over. Uh, this this does not hit that category for me. This is a legit like this guy is still he's what thirty like to me he's still in his prime. Uh, this this does not fall into the category of aging European star looking for one last paycheck. I don't I don't believe that to be the case. I believe this guy has a chance to come over here and be one of the best players MLS has ever seen. I That's what I think of it. I would disagree with that at all. Uh, JJ, shall we move on now? And as we close out this podcast, we'll close out the year 2021 as well. Let's reflect. reflect. Yes, let us. Um, so we've got a few, a couple different categories here to go through in, in this time of reflection. We'll start with the, with the happy stuff, our favorite story from 2021. Um, you want to go first? Yeah, I, I think my favorite story was Italy's march to the Euro 2020 championship. I, I, neutrals just got behind this team. The, the character of this team, the fact that they played a non-Italian style of football, mostly until they got to the knockout rounds and they were able to be quite, um, quite difficult to play against defensively, but they were 
They were fun to watch in the group stages in particular. Uh, the way they belted out that national anthems just seemed to be an event in and of itself. Uh, Euro 2020 itself, Andrew, mm-hmm. was like this wonderful palate cleanser um, because we just, the, 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 the rank order of the Super League was still in our nostrils and it was just brilliant to be able to, to, to kind of get rid of that with such, honestly, brilliant games. Some of the games were top class. It was such an enjoyable tournament from beginning to end. England's storyline, we, we dodged a bullet there. They almost won something on their own turf. And then they lost on penalties at Wembley, which is still hilarious to me. But, but the football was great. Euro 2020 in 2021. I'm, um, yeah, that was, that was my favorite story. That was the thing. And also, it coincided with me coming back into the studio yeah. and, um, and recording, recording on, the, on the Upper West Side again. It, it, it felt great. Uh, this was almost shockingly easy for me to come up with an answer. Sometimes I have to really think this over and look through old podcasts. No, no, no. Favorite story from this year, the U.S. men's national team going 3-0 and against Mexico, winning two trophies and a World Cup it. qualifier in the process. This was, whew, I mean, for like the hype that went into some of these games, for the amount of time that we had waited, especially for that World Cup qualifier, and for the payoff to have been what it was, I mean, not to be overdramatic, but like you couldn't dream of that stuff. And it's funny, too, because like I think of the UEFA Nations League final specifically, um, not that that one means necessarily what the World Cup qualifier meant. That was the most important or even the Gold Cup, which has some history behind it. The UEFA Nations League has zero or not UEFA CONCACAF Nations League has Zero history. So little that I actually confused it with another region of the world. It has zero <laughs> history behind it whatsoever. But you can't tell me that that was not one of the most intense U.S. men's national team games you've seen in years. Like these teams, when they play each other, it doesn't nothing else matters. Like they hate each other on the field. Again, sports hate. They hate each other. And like they create the meaning. And that game, like the final moments of that game, the penalty for Pulisic, the save from Horvath was huge. It set it such a fun tone for the rest of the summer, that Gold Cup win, the Miles Robinson goal, and then obviously Pulisic coming in off the bench, scoring another Dos Acero in a World Cup qualifier. Ooh. I mean, we'll see if this can continue into 2022. I hope it does as an American fan. But for 2021, boy, that was that was a true joy to go 3-0 and against them, all meaningful games, no friendlies. Uh, ooh, that was easily with, I don't even know what, what a distant second would be. Uh, to that for my favorite story from this past year. Justin Pellico, a listener, agrees with you. He contacted us on Instagram. My high was being at uh, the Allegiant Stadium, having to be around a crowd mostly made up of Mexican fans and having to hear them all game long and then watching Miles Robinson go up and head that ball. It was just me and a small family supporting the USA and watching the kids' emotion was amazing. Uh, what a great Great day that was. That was All right, great. we go from the highs of that, JJ, to our least favorite story from 2021. I have a feeling that we might have some uh, some crossover on this one. I don't think we will. Oh. Uh, my least favorite story from 2021 was the eventual final uh, takeover of Newcastle United by uh, Saudi Arabia. Mm. Um, I think that one just hit really hard that they're, it fermented what we we'd long thought about football and particularly the Premier League is that it really doesn't matter who you are 
or what you are, if you have money, you will eventually own a team in this league, however you disguise it, however you want to. The sovereign fund of, of Saudi Arabia taking over Newcastle United was just shocking. And um, a regime that can murder journalists with, with complete um, disregard for international law or for anything else, is um, it's just scary. And uh, it really, really sickened me. And I can't, I can't get away from that. It's, it's, it's a terrible thing that happened this year. And um, and people will say, hey, look, you've been giving Manchester City a pass for many, many years as well. Yeah, but I think this is even more kind of in your face obvious that the, the game has been taken away from people. And um, and now it's in the in the hands of some some seriously bad actors. And also Christian Eriksen's collapse um, during the summer in that opening game against against Finland. I was on vacation and, and you were texting me and I called you. I've never heard you sound as shaken in all in, in, in these last seven years since I've known you, since we've become friends. And I never want to hear it again. That was truly horrifying. And it was it was a game where I thought, you know what? I'm going to enjoy this tournament, but I'm skipping that game. I don't need any more Denmark in my life. I've seen them about seven times as an Ireland supporter. Don't <laughs> need true, any. Yeah. That was the game I picked to skip. And, um, and in some ways, I'm, I'm almost glad that I did. Uh, yeah, that I did have that on my list here. It wasn't my, my primary one, but I did say that even though it had a, a happy ending to it, um, I will never forget for the rest of my life how I was feeling watching that, thinking that I had just seen what I saw there with Christian Erickson. And I know a lot of people felt that way uh, as well. The one that I, I chose for my least favorite story um, was that that wild 48 to 72 hour period when we kind of thought the sport as we know it and love it had been destroyed uh, the, with the super league at least, I mean, forever changed in a way that none of us viewed as for the better uh, with the super league. I mean, what did we, we did like three, three emergency podcasts in like a three day window. I remember texting you. Um, I guess you were at uh, Randall's Island. I think no, I somewhere. was in- Diker Heights watching a soccer game. Okay. I remember texting you saying, uh, just like writing, uh, are you seeing this? Like, have you seen, because you hadn't. No. And I was like, we got it. Like, normally I, I'll, I'll say full disclosure when, when an emergency podcast, I mean, oftentimes we'll be in agreement and say, yeah, we got to do this. But when we're not, it's usually you that are pushing us to do one. I'm the driving uh, force. But this one, because you hadn't seen, I said, you got to, you got to get home. We got to do this now. <laughs> like, this is, this is insane. What, like what just happened? Um, so certainly that. And I remember, I mean, you know, there were a lot of feelings associated with that. Most of them having to do with anger. But so so re- probably the first time that I really felt like shame uh, for the club that I support, having been a part of that, this scheme to kind of ruin the game in many ways. Uh, that was it was a really uncomfortable feeling. I remember we talked at length in one of those podcasts about kind of like how do fan like the majority of fans of this podcast support a team that was in some way involved with the potential breakup of the sport in Europe. Uh, and a lot of fans, I think we're having a hard time coping with that. So the, the whole super league now, again, there was a happy ending. The, the voice of the fans in many ways, I mean, the, those Chelsea supporters can in some ways claim a victory um, with their protests that kind of got the ball rolling for the, for Chelsea to drop out and, and many followed. Uh, so there was a happy ending to it, but that was that was an ugly chapter in this sports history. And uh, you wonder in, in some ways if that was only, you know, an early chapter in this book, what is still to come? We know that 
kind of under the rope of this happening, the Champions League was then changed sort of quietly uh, because everyone was so focused on this. But like the Champions League is going to be different. Um, and that's I don't view that as a good thing. I think the Champions League is excellent right now, but it's going to be changed and it's going to help the big clubs. And um, so I think we'll see where a, this goes. But that was that was clearly my my worst story of the year. I think that it was a victory also for those of us who don't like there's an orthodoxy in certain areas of America, of American life amongst the American populace, where they think that billionaires are the most intelligent people in the world. They are so cunning. They're so strategy based. They get things right. And that's why they have billions and billions of dollars. It was a victory for those of us who think not all billionaires are going to execute strategy perfectly. That was the worst rollout of anything I've ever seen. It was so bad, catastrophic from the font to the branding, to the press release in two different fonts. It was a, it was pathetic. Yeah. And then to see John and the, Henry... the utter silence fo- that followed it, <laughs> no explanation really. Um, no, it, it was the, the entire PR campaign was part of its undoing. I think there was no, there was no gentle voice to try to calm people and explain why this is going to be good for the game. None of that existed. And the website is still, the website is still up and running. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I I should say too, uh, I kind of had like another honorable mention here. I don't know if it quite qualifies as a least favorite story, but it was a story that I didn't necessarily take joy in just seeing Messi leave Barcelona for PSG. It was just that whole thing was just kind of uncomfortable his end at that club um i thought we know it's not that i'm a barcelona supporter uh it was just i don't know just not something i didn't really take any joy in seeing uh watching messi leave for uh for league uh, and and psg just i don't, would have liked to have found a way for him to remain at barcelona but uh, they needed to sign Ferran Torres. They needed to free up that money, JJ. Uh, all right. Our most memorable podcast moments from 2021. I got a few here. Yeah. I'm going to whip through mine because the listeners have got some good ones. Yeah. Okay. Uh, our, our, memor- our most memorable podcast moments. Uh, I've got uh, getting back into the studio, obviously, uh, for the latter stages of your 2020. Um, when we went for dinner as well, that was really, really good. When oh, you yeah. decide the knife and fork incident. Um, <laughs> Uh, you mentioned the Super League, but the three Super League podcasts were were momentous. Like it was really good to be tracking that thing. Uh, we did our our, rea- our our emergency pod, then we had Tarek Panja on, and then he was col- he was spectacular. He, he's been uh, spectacular for us this year. Uh, yeah, and we should thank all of our contributors, but um, Tarek in, in particular. Um, uh, the summer of winning was just so much fun, and people enjoyed the reaction pods. Uh, your barber story is is a sneaky classic for me, where the barber basically hit on your. Well, he didn't hit, hit no. Your basically about it, he he asked me if my parents were still together. Who asks that unless randomly. they have some kind of ulterior motive? Yeah, randomly out of nowhere. But um, you know, there's there's some other people who have got some uh some highlights from the pod. I'm just going to mention them. Jenna Green, hi, the birth of the vicious animals on Reddit. Low haters not believing Andrew's fire rescue story. Be better. Hashtag not good enough. Wait, um, people, which story that about Luke getting locked in his room? Yeah, fire rescue. People don't story. believe that. Oh God, there was a reaction <laughs> well, that no one was that. no one was buying it. Andrew. Um, um, all right, <laughs> I sent you the picture, right? Did yeah, you tweet it? I tweeted it out. It's still not enough for people, Andrew. You know, 
there's people who don't believe that the earth is round. They, want, <laughs> they need more evidence. Uh, Sean uh, Travaglini, he said, Xavi's laws are coming to town, hands down. Um, Alex Gonzalez. Alex Gonzalez, first episode back in the studio since uh, 2020 was a definite high. And um, let me see. Oh, yeah. Bryant Olivius, the U.S. men's national team recap pods were a joy to listen to. Thanks for being the exclamation point on the end of some really amazing games for the uh, U.S. Men's so national nice. team. That's yeah. very nice. Javi's um, yeah, Laws, by the way, has just gone. People just loved it, Andrew. It's top in the charts. It really is. That was a lot of fun doing that. Uh, and, and the reaction has been great. And, and thank you, everyone, who seems to have taken that with the fun spirit with which it was intended. It was, yeah, I, would also uh, I like enjoyed to, it. I would also like to warn some people that we might put it on Spotify just for the fun. <laughs> uh, a couple of the memorable podcast moments that I thought of. Uh, JJ, remember after the CONCACAF Nations League final, uh, my sister-in-law and her son were staying in my house unexpectedly in the basement where I normally record from. And then the rest of my family was upstairs. So I had to make a blanket fort in my living room and <laughs> record right. from inside, <laughs> from inside of that. Um, a couple of interviews, uh, like you just said, I want to echo that and thank all of our guests that we've had on this year, John champion, Taylor Twelman, most recently, um, Craig Burley earlier in the year. I can't remember when Guy Mowbray was, if that was this year or last year or both. We had him on twice. Great. We had him on last year and this year, but I, I, a couple that I wanted to mention that stood out, obviously, you know, Tottenham fan aside, talking with Arsene Wenger, that was he was great uh, and really cordial, friendly to talk to. That was a great conversation. Really, we should have that. asked him what he was doing. I know he was he was plotting a biennial World Cup while we were talking with him, and uh, also again to go back to Barcelona because I just kind of find their their sort of downfall so interesting. We've mentioned it before, but the Simon Cooper inter- interview that we did was was fascinating to me. His insight on how they wound up where they were. It answered so many questions, um, which I know a lot of people had. So I'll, I'll, I'll say it until this podcast signs off for the final time, whenever, who knows what year that'll be. I'll always recommend that Simon Cooper podcast because it was really interesting. Before and you I, get to I had last... also said our first podcast in the same studio in over a year. That yeah, that's awesome. Before you get to the last one, there's a couple of ones I want to get to. I know you hate uh, U.S. lower league soccer, like despise it. You um, have created a false narrative, but if you want to pedal it, fine. I, no, I, I won't stand in your way any longer. We had production meetings where you told me I needed to, to cool it on, on this is two years ago. You told me to, you know, people aren't interested. You said, so there we go. But <laughs> oh, uh, one God person, uh, his highlight of the year was union Omaha winning the USL league one title at home. Um, so that's amazing. And that's Omaha, Nebraska, Andrew. Oh, I mean, if you don't care about working class people uh, in America, you definitely don't care about Union, Nebraska. Uh, no, the or- only Omaha I know is the Peyton Manning Audible. I didn't even know it was a city. Wow. Um, yeah, so the, that's a, that was a pretty cool uh, local league memory. And um, we have another one here from VDH underscore S. How about some love for the Canadian men's national team who accumulated more FIFA world ranking points than any other national team in 2021 and had a, have added some fresh enthusiasm and passion to CONCACAF? They have. As if con- they, they definitely have. Um, top the best of the October- player in CONCACAF plays for Canada. Yeah, that's true. I'm Listen, we are, we are Canada stands here as long as they don't get in our way. Easy. Um, uh, Nike makes a very good point. The best day at Euro history, Spain, five, three, Spain, Croatia, five, three and Switzerland, three, France, three, and then out on penalties. Yeah. What you're right. What? What? That was a wild, wild afternoon. What a day 
And uh, Jonathan Sanchez, uh, he's just Johnny from the Bronx. Uh, Ronnie Dahlia stripping down mm. and doing push-ups with the cup in front of thousands of NYCFC fans. Um, yeah, there we go. Uh, and then finally, to close it out, JJ, the thing that we're most looking forward to in 2022, I mean, I'll go first here. Mine's quick and, and obvious. Look, there are circumstances around this upcoming World Cup that I obviously am not fond of. The manner in which the stadiums are being constructed, the time of year in which it's happening, uh, the manner in which it was awarded in the first place. But by God, the World Cup as a thing, I love it. Um, and we're trying not to be arrogant. Nothing is guaranteed at this point. but the U S are in good position. Uh, my expectation is that they will be there, that they will qualify. And I'm telling you right now, JJ, I'm going to be excited. There will be preview podcasts. Oh, there will be preview podcasts. I am already, my hope really beyond just the excitement of watching the U S back in a world cup. My hope really is that COVID will subside to a point where we can really do some fun stuff. Uh, when we get to that world cup, whether it's podcast related and with listeners going to bars, like we did for the, the 19 champions league final, some, some kind of like you talk about production meetings, there will be meetings. There will be meetings. We're going to, we're going to go all out and have a lot of fun I, with, with that world cup. Yeah. I'm excited for just, I'm just excited for the next podcast that we do. I really am. I'm uh, I'm very much like it's on to, on to Cincinnati for me. I, I, <laughs> Like I do, it's the next podcast I'm always thinking of, but I am excited for, for, um, for the next year. I, I, I can't get excited yet about the world cup. It's, it's still too weird for my 1990s brain to think of a world cup. That is, I mean, I'm still struggling with a 32 team world cup, Never mind uh, anything else. So it's going to, oh it's weird. <laughs> it's weird for me to get my, wrap my head around a world cup in, in the middle of winter, but I'll get there. I'm really looking forward to the world cup playoffs. Um, Wales, Austria, Scotland, Ukraine, and Russia, Poland, Sweden, Czech Republic, Portugal, Turkey, Italy, Macedonia, like those teams, uh, at the end of March, those games are going to be just absolutely, it, it's really going to be like this enjoyable mini tournament. And obviously I'm looking forward, uh, in the immediate, uh, you know, uh, February, March, uh, the champions league latter stages, which just continue to be the best football in the world, in my opinion. Well, there you go. What a year. What a podcast. This is a huge one. An absolute yeah. brute, a monster. But it's something if you're if you're commuting, uh, you'll enjoy it. And you'll also enjoy JJ making a fool of himself with numbers and also repeating himself because he got so flustered. If this podcast were, in fact, a burrito, I think it would be reasonable to eat it with a knife and fork. I, I think it would be more than reasonable size wise just that big this yeah. was fun man we of course will be back again next week with another podcast where we'll look back on a lot of these festive fixtures there's some really big ones coming up liverpool chelsea is is that january 2nd oh i don't i don't even know what day of the week it is andrew so uh it's coming up that? i know that so that's that's a big one right there you, it's you talk about like january mini, 2nd you yeah. talk about mini playoffs like if if we do in fact if there's any hope of manchester city like that's almost it almost feels like an elimination game for whoever loses that one uh, in terms of like wanting to have some hope to cling to of, of being able to keep pace with Manchester city. So that is, I can't think of a more massive way um, for the season to continue into the new year and for the USA network to pick up where NBCSN left off. I'm going to go upstairs right now, JJ, have a drink. I'm going to pour some out for NBCSN and the work they've done as they switch over. Yeah. I can't wait for the Mecham only channel. That's going to come. Uh... That's what's yeah. That's be, it's such a force uh, <laughs> that it has pushed everything out. 
and it's <laughs> all Meekum all the time. What's going to happen when uh, they release the rankings or the TV ratings next year and MLS is behind Meekum? <laughs> no, don't say that. <laughs> don't. I don't want to live in that world. This was fun, man. To you, I say. Check you later, fun boy. I'll see you. Happy New Year. You've been listening to the Caught Offside Soccer Podcast. 